0: Future Proof Extra
1: with Jonathan McRae,
0: proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland, on News Talk.
1: Even at the best of times, surrogacy can be a complicated enough process. Might the introduction of AI make things worse or better? To tell me more about how this might work, I was joined by Dr. David Walsh, first IVF chairman. Welcome to the program, uh, David. Let's start off at the basic uh, of uh, how these things work. Can you explain to me the difference between uh, a three-parent family and a two-parent family when it comes to sperm, egg, fertilization, and so on?
0: Okay. So you start off with the genetic father, the genetic mother, but then also if another woman carries a pregnancy and then delivers, she's the birth mother, but she may not be the genetic mother. So for example, if a couple, a heterosexual couple have made an embryo, a sister, a friend might carry the pregnancy for them and delivers the child. Now in law, under current law, she would be the the surrogate mother, host surrogate is what she's called, would be recognized as the legal mother. And then over the process of uh, several years, guardianship would be applied then to these intending parents to reapproximate these parental rights and responsibilities. The only person, funnily enough, in this situation who would have automatic entitlement would be the father because he could prove by. DNA testing that he was the genetic father of the child. So he would have a locus, a legal locus to being recognized at an early stage.
1: This is embryo. Where does it start out before it's implanted in the, the surrogate mother?
0: OK, so any any situation, you're going to take a sperm and an egg together, let them fertilize, become an embryo. And then whoever has created that embryo, the question is, is it that couple's embryo, which normally it would be, that they would transfer that embryo. She would then receive their embryo, their genetic embryo, and she would carry the pregnancy. But under certain circumstances, she cannot do it. Maybe she's got a a genetic abnormality where the uterus doesn't exist um, or other abnormalities, like scarring of the uterus after aggressive DNCs and something like that. So, so these sort of situations arise. So she might ask somebody else to carry the pregnancy for her. So it's still their genetic embryos, but another woman is carrying the pregnancy and delivers the baby and then has to give away those legal rights because the law judges that you know, maternity is certain based on birth, but paternity is uncertain, and that's why you do genetic testing DNA. There are are different
1: flavors of this, though, right? So, um, if uh, an embryo cannot be formed by the the mother and father, uh, there are other ways of of skinning a cat, so to speak, um, in terms of donating mitochondria and so on. And so, so in those, could you just take me through those different variations and what what level of DNA from the mother is present in that embryo?
0: Yeah, I mean, before, yes, absolutely. So mitochondria are basically bugs that inserted themselves into our cells billions, two billion years ago. So they have different DNA from our DNA. So for example, if a woman has, and and these mitochondrial conditions, if you imagine the egg has all the mechanisms and all that happens is the sperm, the nucleus of the sperm enters and merges with the, the DNA, if you like, the human DNA of the female to become the nucleus of the cell. But outside of the nucleus are these mitochondria and sometimes they're very defective. So if a woman has a mitochondrial condition that she's inherited from her mother, because that's where the cell comes from, uh, then she would need to take a, a donor egg, but t- they would take the donor's nucleus out and put their her nucleus in and therefore the, the, they'd have new donor mitochondria, but the nuclear material would be themselves, which is what We are manifest as, you know, our phenotype, everything about us is an expression of our genotype, which comes from the nucleus of the cell. So the nuclear material, the human nuclear material is still theirs, but the cellular material, including the mitochondria with these strange other DNA, because it's a bug, uh, has now been so healthy mitochondria have now been donated effectively by that technique.
1: Right, um, and just before we go into the AI part, because I'm sure people are familiar with all of that, but we are now entering an era where uh, we can go one step further. I'm wondering it, it, the science seems to be there. I'm wondering in in practice, how um, how likely are we to see two father embryos in the in the future, where uh, a a cell has a skin cell has been uh, programmed into a, a stem cell and then developed into uh, an egg to then uh, have two fathers as the, the parent of one child. Is that is that light years away or is that something that is not so far away in terms of actual um, application in the clinic?
0: That's a that's a good question. I mean, we were involved in a, a, a surrogacy seminar in, in Dublin last month. And it was interesting that two thirds of the couples there were gay men. Looking to have a family Mm. now, the way that's conventionally done, as you as you would know, then is one of the of the 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 gay partners would decide to be the genetic father, and then that sperm would be fertilized with a donor egg, and then that embryo would be carried by the surrogate. Um, I think from a regulatory point of view, you're going to find a huge impediment. I mean, we're struggling to get. Uh, simple things like a friend, a family member wants to carry a pregnancy for their for their brother who's in a who's in a gay relationship or married, and they would like to carry the pregnancy for them. And we're probably several years, many years, maybe three or four or five years away from actually implementing a regulatory structure to allow that. Pushing on then to the technology side, I I think it's going to be. Difficult to see it being implemented in any realistic time frame for right. couples at the moment. That doesn't mean that there aren't people experimenting on it and there's a lot of stuff. But I just see the application being, uh, being for real couples under the current situation. Uh, I think that would be a struggle. But yes, of course, um, the, the, the potential does exist. The question is, who does it? How do they do it? Who is it applied for? And it's a classic thing, just because you can do something doesn't mean you necessarily should. I can see real world issues. I mean, people are still um, have reservations about, you know, somebody carrying a pregnancy for somebody else. And I think we have to, to temper that. So the answer to it is I've no doubt in my mind <laughs> that you're right. It's just its application.
1: Um, so let's talk a little bit now about the outcome that everyone wants which is you know for for want of a better term we'll call it a a healthy baby right Um, at the moment how do all of those different variations the two male parents obviously aside how do all those different different variations compare when you get these embryos that are made up from different mitochondria or donor eggs or any of those sort of things do they all compare very well when you look at those embryos under a microscope uh, before you transplant them? Uh, is it less likely to be a so-called perfect embryo if it is um, if it is a mixture? And how uh, how are we working to improve the rates of success in IVF when it comes to technology?
0: I think. It is getting better. There's two uh, new techniques. Um, Obviously, one which is very uh, current would be artificial intelligence. And what the AI systems work at is they work in reverse order. They start with the uh, the healthy birth of a baby, and they go back and look at the behavior of the embryo during its five days inside an incubator, and then say what were the markers here that predicted that? And it's not even about why. What is in truth? is reflected. So, for example, a a normal embryo or an abnormal embryo, it looks like, has different behaviours. But what do you mean by behaviours? Because we're talking about, you know, a few cells. It it is true. Now, first of all, you're looking at a two-dimensional image, number one. Uh, So, that two-dimensional, so it's like taking a photograph of somebody. But if you have a video of that person, for those first few days, you can look at their behavior and it, what they've done is they look at the hardcore outcomes, uh, uh, genetic chromosome normality and the birth of a live born child. And then they go back to see things that we can't see. So that data point that shifted, that wouldn't be visual, wouldn't be seen by the, the by the human eye is evidence because it's a tiny metric, a tiny data movement. And and they then say, and so we're going to have to re-engineer embryology, actually, because reverse engineer our understanding that there's certain behaviors that seem to be characteristic of normal or abnormal embryos. So, so this is really
1: interesting, David. So what you're saying is that w- we can use AI, feed it a whole lot of data sets of healthy and, and uh, what turn out to be uh, um, unviable uh, embryos, and then the AI can see something that we can't see and
0: say, this is going to work, that's not going to work. But we don't know what that is. That's right. It's exactly what we know it works in practice, but we don't know why it works in theory. And so hmm. we're going to have to re engineer over the course of time. And the more these things, the more data they get, the better they get at predicting. So, you know, to a 90% or a greater than 90% probability. And that gets more, the more data they analyze, the better they get. So, in the real world, it makes it means we have a much better idea as to which embryo has the desire and the capability to become a baby, which means, of course, the implantation rates go up by maybe 20% from, say, 50 to 70%. Wow. And, and it also means, though, and this is really important for the doctors, uh, as well as for the patients, is if you have an embryo that has such a high potential, and that patient either doesn't get pregnant or loses that pregnancy, you know it wasn't the embryo's fault. It was on the 20% that's on the environmental side. And you need to say, well, why was this recipient environment, why was the environment hostile or not receptive? Was there infection present? Was there scarring? We need to look aggressively. So it, it gives you confidence then to look at the counter side. Right, and so, it's it's changing the dynamic and this would apply no matter who you're treating, a single person, a, a straight couple, a gay couple, a couple with mitochondria. It, it, really, the principle still applies. Work from the baby backwards and then see which technology is going to give you the best chance.
1: That's really, really interesting. And, um, I, I you know, I suppose the question that popped into my head when you said 70 percent, I was going to ask you with, with these sort of technologies, how much does it improve? um the chances of a viable baby from ivf from say 15 20
0: years ago hugely i'd say it's doubled really, really? the only problem. yes it has doubled if you look at it over say a 20 year period because we know now uh which embryos are much more likely to implant so the the real issue i suppose also here is these technologies are much cheaper so it looks like we'll be able to shift from, if you like, in expensive invasive testing, which nearly doubles the cost of, of the treatment, to universal non-invasive techniques, including AI in particular. The current method that we use um, is, is invasive and can actually cause uh, problems with what would have otherwise would have been a healthy embryo that's true because the embryo is composed of the inner cell mass which becomes the baby and the outer bit which becomes the afterbirth and with with genetic testing currently you slice off cells off the what is what will become the placenta and then you interpret from that so that a obviously there's some effect on the embryo and secondly of course you're not actually sampling the inner cell mass which becomes the baby which introduces some small degrees of error so if you can do if you can approximate this over the course of time without actually make, doing any injury to the to the embryo and at low cost which is critical uh that means you can basically do it for everybody so you move from selective expensive invasive testing to universal low cost for pretty much well for every person who comes through an ivf lab
1: wow this is extraordinary you mentioned another technology um that that is currently in use or on the horizon
0: what was that this is a thing called spent, using spent culture media. I mean, most women who are pregnant will understand the harmony test or some equivalent where they have mater- the blood sample taken and then the baby cells are, are taken out of the maternal circulation. But what this does is utilizes the fluid in which the embryo sits and does effectively the same thing. So you can then use that to screen uh, for the same conditions that you do with the harmony test before somebody has, has achieved a pregnancy. Now, That's still in development. Can you take me through that from a scientific point of yeah, view? Yeah. Well, imagine. So, so, so let's say you put it. You have most incubators now. They leave the sperm, the eggs together. They don't touch them. They put them in these little, uh, little. Each one has its own space and grows away and has its media. So. What, um, the, what happens then is it grows, and it obviously disposes of cells. as it grows and expands and, and, and contracts and expands and contracts, etc, as it develops and becomes more complex, it sheds cells. So if you can then so it used to be, and still is the case, that when you take an embryo out for either transfer or for freezing, you just dispose of the fluid. But if you then take the fluid, you can then do genetic testing. Now, for an individual patient, you may not may not be something that that couple want to do. But at least you can freeze it, and you have the cellular material which you can then go back and Sorry, the other thing about AI is uh, going the AI side, which is the other component is you can actually go back and retrospectively interrogate any series of images as long as they were taken, and you've got the 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 the, the, the data. You can reanalyze and go back in time as well as currently to see what those scores would be and then reinterpret what the outcomes were.
1: Are there any concerns about this use of AI when you've essentially described what is a, a black box system? Are there any concerns that yes. um, it might give us outcomes we don't want?
0: Well, first of all, you have the moral argument about whether we should be screening for, you know, chromosomally normal versus chromosomally abnormal embryos. Uh, you know, obviously, Down syndrome comes into that into that that discussion point, and that's a obviously a, a, an issue for for many people. Um, beyond that, I, I mean, there are questions then over well, what do you do with the abnormal embryos? Now, you know, or embryos at a very high probability of being abnormal. Let's say. And in reality, most people don't use them and and dispose of them over the course of time. So they utilize the ones that have a high chance of resulting in a healthy baby. And it's a perfectly rational thing to do. So beyond that, the AI is not causing any damage. Um, Interesting, the AI application is much wider than embryology because the potential is to actually go into your patient management systems, the totality of any interface, clinical interface, and start to look at patterns. And then look at outcomes, let's say, you know, uh, survival after surgery for whatever, and then interpret the data set it has, the HSE's data set or anybody else's, and say, well, what were the factors? You know, you might find, is it individuals? Is it a system issue? I mean, in terms of almost boards that you cr- create, this has a much wider application. And sorry, the other element that you can also use AI for is in patient communication, because a lot of formulaic stuff that the doctors do they're saying the same thing over and over again it'd be much better if there was a if they could set up an avatar of themselves and then you know give this information and then any further it means that when you're having a proper consultation with somebody you've gotten through all the basic stuff look you might bleed there might be infection to the specifics of your particular case and therefore Mm. the Benefit to you as a patient of that interface with your care provider, your doctor, let's say, is much enhanced because you're already on a much higher level. You've got all the basics out of the way, and you can really talk about you and your problems very specifically.
1: Yeah, at the same time, we probably could have done that with VHS tapes. With uh, uh, hi, I'm Troy McClure. I hear you're having a baby. I mean, like that—that theoretically is possible beforehand. But I suppose with with AI. Um, and certainly with the development of things like um, OpenAI, you probably could uh, give answers to some basic questions so that it's a much more interactive um, experience. But um, uh, in terms of the reputation of um, doctors not wanting to spend time with their patients, I'm not sure how that would go, <laughs> go down. But it's,
0: no, it's um, more that you can spend valuable time, that you can yeah. spend the 30 minutes or the hour that you have really discussing interesting elements about that specific person rather than just General.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Really interesting stuff. Um, chairman of First IVF, Dr. David Walsh. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you.
0: Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McCrae, proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.